If you work in a corporate environment, the chances are pretty good that at some point you've had to take one of these workplace safety trainings where they teach you how to avoid getting hit in the head by open file cabinet drawers or how not to slip and fall on a spill. But what they might not teach you is what to do if somebody publishes your personal information online or uses your work phone to make harassing phone calls. This is Game Plan. I'm Francesca Levy. And I'm Rebecca Greenfield. And today we are talking about workplace safety, which usually calls to mind something like this. Now, suppose we get down to business and talk about safety. You know, for some strange reason, people seem to consider office work as being free of any danger. What could happen to anyone working behind a nice, safe desk? Uh-uh. Typewriter bites girl. Here's an industrious-looking fellow with his mind on his work. Oh! Desk traps man. These, like, retro workplace safety advisories are kind of, like, they don't r- ring very realistic to us right And now. they're an entire genre on YouTube, Yeah, I've discovered. They're also very gendered, usually. It's usually, like, the pretty but dumb secretary who, yeah. you know, spills coffee on everyone else. And usually the thing, the accidents they're getting themselves into are like outsized for what happened. You know, it's like I spilled coffee and somebody like slipped and fell and died. Right. <laughs> so it all it all seems really silly and over the top to us. But there was a reason that these videos kind of came about. Yeah. So the workplace originally before we all worked in offices where our biggest problem was back injuries was, and paper cuts. And paper cuts. <laughs> the workplace originally was an unsafe place, and it is still for some workers. I mean, think right. about factories, right? Uh, mining, those type of workplaces. Like it's it's serious. You know, people can really get hurt in real ways. Um, but now we all work in offices, which people can still get hurt and sue their companies and file for disability. And so that's why we now have these workplace safety videos so that companies can basically cover their butts. So they can say, we told you that this might happen. Right. And then we covered every possibility. Yeah. We had to watch one because I know it's like burned into my brain that I'm supposed to tell someone if I spill something. I spilled something, a whole bowl of cereal, and I did tell someone. Exactly. Though it works. It works. Yeah, I was totally indoctrinated. There's a funny Wall Street Journal article that I came across from 2014. We're like making fun of over-the-top safety measures. Um, And it talks about all these ways that companies and their employees take these things really seriously. So at the headquarters of Chevron, everybody gets a small white card that says stop work. And if you see something dangerous, you're supposed to like whip out the card and tell people to stop working. I have never seen anything dangerous enough (laughs) in a workplace environment that I would that I would whip out a card of any kind and try to stop it. If you saw like a power cord on the ground and you were like, no guys, stop work. But okay, I know we're making fun of this, but safety is an important topic. Some statistics say that injuries are down and have been down in the workplace for the last 13 years minus one year. And I think that might partly be because workplaces are just in general work is safer. I'm not sure. Or or companies are putting in place, you know, more of these safeguards because they're that scared of getting sued. And now that we all kind of work in this more connected environment, there are 
more ways to be unsafe at work. And those ways aren't necessarily addressed in these helpful videos and trainings. Yeah, I think a lot of us work online or our lives are online. And there's this confusing blending between what's work and what is your private life. And that can lead you into situations where you might be having some sort of conflict or being harassed online. And it's like, am I at work? Am I not at work? Right. And people can find out more about you if they don't like something you're doing in your role at your job. It's easier for people to learn more about you based on your kind of online profile. And the interesting thing is that it's not yet really clear when these situations arise what your company should or can do about it, if anything. Our guest today is going to talk about her experience as a journalist writing a story that got her harassed online and what that did to her as a professional. And before we get to the interview, a warning to our listeners that the topics we cover are sensitive and intense. Lauren Duca is a contributing editor for Teen Vogue, where she writes about politics and culture. Lauren, can you start by telling us about some of the work you've done lately and how it's put you in the public eye? Sure. So it has been sort of a crazy month because there were kind of a couple of things that forced me into bad inbox climate. (laughs) Uh, So early in December or like the 10th, I published a piece that went viral called Donald Trump is Gaslighting America. And that sort of received its own uh, set of trolling and support. And then Two, about two weeks later, it was the 23rd, I was on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox to talk about actually something separate, but that came up. And then um, Martin Scully got involved with trolling me as well, and he was suspended from Twitter. So that was sort of the third thing. And I don't really remember what like normal life is like. <laughs> it's been a sort of a strange time, and it's been interesting as well because each Thing brought its own specific version of response in general, but a spot, like the harassment and the tone of the harassment was specific to each event. <laughs> so I almost feel like I could write like a taxonomy of trolling at this point, wow. like different subgenres of you, trolls. It's interesting to hear you say you don't know what normal like life is like anymore because now that you're not in the immediate aftermath of any one of those things. What is your professional life like now? Like what it, what happens when you open your inbox in the morning and you start your day? Uh, so it is really bad still. I can't believe these people still have so much time on their hands because I would have thought it would have died down. And also just anything I put out into the world is now garners so such an intense response and so much bigger of a response and that could just mean tweeting but then at the same time there's people creating email addresses like Nazi pussy grabber and just bombarding me with messages about how I'm going to be I guess like a sex toy in Camp Trump which is I don't know a fictitious <laughs> concentration camp um, so it's it's very it's a lot it's a lot and, and I don't actually know if I know how it's affecting me yet because I haven't really had a any t- 
time to step fully back away from it. But I definitely feel like my chest has not really been released from this tight feeling since early December. You mentioned the different flavors of trolling. And I just wanted to know if you could give us an idea of the type of stuff you're getting and the volume to which you're getting it and how it interacts with your work life. On Christmas Day, I was getting like death, rape and doxing threats. And but even to more some of the subdued ones, I I responded and I said, not to a lot, just to a couple, but does it bring you joy to send a message like this to a stranger on Christmas Day? Just thinking that seeing that would (laughs) have some kind of wake up call moment for these people. And the response was get raped. Um, I don't know what words we're allowed to say, but rhymes with bunt. And uh, yeah, so this is not people just having a bad day and feeling angry and like being able to humanize me. It's, it's like this concerted effort. And like these, like I get these a lot of emails that I think are all from the same person because they're all like a lot of the Nazi Camp Trump stuff follows a similar format where it might just be one guy sitting and like doing a generator to create these emails. And then because they have the same tone, the syntax is really similar. So I almost think a lot of it, it could just be a couple of people, but that doesn't necessarily change the way it feels. And the thing that's really hard is that I open my computer and I, I can't not see it. So it's like I can do my best to ignore it. And I've gotten better at that. It was strange at first because, or I lost the, I didn't know how it was making me feel at first because I was kind of performing a reverence and making fun of it. And, you know, be like, you're a whore. And it would be like, why are you are? And I'd be like, you know, it's, 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 you, it's, you are like, it's not, that's not a correct grammar. And, and it's like, that's still some of it. It's like, I can write it off as lunatics and, and I can make fun of it. And some of it is just like crazy. And then. So sort of unleashing it to my followers who are mostly people who are following me because they like my writing or support the work I'm doing. Then having that kind of influx of we have your back. Don't you know, here's a picture of my dog. Here's like that kindness come through has helped. But it also was hard to be acting through it and acting tougher than it when and kind of admitting to myself that it's okay for it to hurt your feelings to have people say mean things to you that's allowed and like I don't have to be tougher than that because I'm a human being and um yeah so I I think now the it is more of an it's dulled but it's still takes an impact and it takes part of my time and energy every day and that feels incredibly unfair and it's a hindrance on my you know distracting me it's making me less productive and it's just like a limitation on what I could be achieving in each individual day and that adds up are you concerned for your safety at all through any of these messages there are a few that were concerning I don't know how specifically I should talk about that because I just don't want to give anyone ideas. But the thing is, it's like it only takes one. Like I've had people reach out to me who have been doxxed or hacked or and had to move or. or should we t- cl- just clarify what doxing is for anyone who doesn't? Sure. Know. Yeah, that's just when they put your information up to make you feel super unsafe. Or for people to send you edible arrangements. Who knows? Right, (laughs) your home address and your identifying information. People have sent me crazy tips for things that just make me feel even more out of 
control because it's the tips are things that are just like, oh my gosh, if people can like get a burner phone to do two-step verification and because they can impersonate you and go into your cell phone carrier store and get a new SIM card and then be able to like hijack your phone and then hack into everything through there. It's just, oh, like, what? <laughs> that's, that's so, that was not even, I felt I was like, thank you, this is helpful. But in my head, I'm just like, Jesus, this is so crazy. That was unsolicited advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from somebody, like, uh, who had someone experienced. had experienced. Yeah, and he's like, wow. if you see no service in the top of your phone, that means they got it. I'm just like, great. Uh, this, oh my gosh. Yeah. Every, now, time every, you're on time, the subway. Yeah, every time you're on the subway. <laughs> yeah, who knows? The thing is, it's just like they all could be something, but they're all probably nothing. But it only takes one. So it's all—it's all just like honestly, it's a form of terrorism because they're aware of that, and they know that their threat is—it it's, carries a weight of possibility. I mean, I had a female journalist reach out to me and say it only took one doxing threat for her to get doxed. So it's sort of just like I'm bracing for impact, and I mean, I've done some preventative things, like my husband and I got LifeLock. Which is um, it's a service that it has an insurance policy and alerts you if your information is being used okay. in any way online. Like even that annoys me. Like it's like really we right. make, we had to spend seven hundred dollars to get this just you know right. because but I mean it's, it's sort of like what can you do? Right. Has uh, your uh, workplace done any? Or the, I know you're a freelancer, but yeah. have the places that you work for done anything? Um, put any resources behind it? Given you any? Anything? No. You know, I, they've been compassionate about it, and uh, I don't know that there's so much that they can do. And I know even when I was at HuffPost and dealing with this a little bit, there's just like, it's like, we're sorry. <laughs> and it's so, it's incredibly unfair that the, there's sort of just this shrug of like, that's the world, isn't it? Because that's the world, isn't it, for women specifically? I think that that thing, that's what's so incredibly troubling about it is that it's on me as a freelancer. It's this yeah. theft of time and energy. And then within a workplace where it's just like another setback that right. women have to take on. Yeah. And as a freelancer, it's it's uh, it adds to that sense of, in, I would imagine, to that sort of sense of insecurity you already have as a freelancer, which is kind of like, the burden is on you to handle any kind of financial hardship that comes up or imposition on your time. And you were saying, you know, this is both something that takes your time and money to kind of protect yourself from, but it, and it rightly distracts you from, from doing your job, which is coming in and writing stories. Like, have you communicated that to the outlets that you work with? Have you ever had to say, you know, I need, an, I need extra time to work on this story or I need, or whatever you've needed? Like, have you expressed needs to them and have they been understanding or have they reached out to you? No, uh, but that I haven't, I have a very strong never miss a deadline policy and I just try and take care of everything myself. Um, I mean, that might, depending on how it is or how it devolves, that might, that would be something I would consider. Um, but is talking specifically to place some pitching. But the other thing too is like in terms of if my Twitter account or my Gmail were to get hacked, that would be so it's sort of like if I was in an office setting and I was a staffer somewhere and then that happened, they would deal with my email and work that out for me and 
be able to reestablish everything. Or they might. <laughs> <laughs> at least on, at you, least on that. If your work email gets hacked. Your work email. Yes, yeah. right. <laughs> that but, would be something your employer would sure. deal with. Yeah. Certainly. But, but it's sort of like now, uh, especially like all of my networking, all of my connections, all of my contacts are built out through those. I mean, and now I've you know taken... There would be ways around it, and I could find, you know, I, uh, presumably the editors I work with wouldn't just be like, well, she's gone. But <laughs> it still would be, that would be a huge uh, right. robbery of resources <laughs> in a way that it wouldn't maybe mm-hmm. affect somebody who was on staff full time. So I'm, I'm definitely more vulnerable in terms of what can be taken mm-hmm. from me. Um, you mentioned this article you wrote for Teen Vogue about your Twitter harassment. And one thing in the piece you talk about is that you're not going to just opt out. I know that that is something that people can do. I'm, I, yeah. I've i also experienced some of this online harassment, and it has pushed me away from wanting to be on these platforms because it's distracting from my work. Um, why have you decided to not opt out? I feel very strongly that the goal of the harassment is to silence me. So I have a sense of obligation of not proving that I have not been silenced. Uh, And I, maybe that's stupid and stubborn because it is getting in the way of my work. So like, practically speaking, I could probably tone it down on Twitter and that wouldn't like affect my finances directly. But also I've gotten most of my work this year through connections that started on Twitter. And, you know, I got hooked up with Teen Vogue. Uh, The editorial director reached out to me. He liked, he knew about my writing and liked my presence because of my Twitter account. And now working for Teen Vogue and this art, like this has totally changed my career. And it was all started with a connection formed on Twitter. I think that we think like Twitter is some silly, stupid waste of time, but it's it's been incremental for me. Uh, especially this year going freelance, which is hard. And you have to form a lot of different connections and maintain them and have this little garden of well, <laughs> networking. Many, it's like in many ways, Twitter is your workplace. Yes. Or it's it's a virtual oh, location where you do your work. And, and so being attacked on that yes. platform is like, you know, directly taking hits like at the place that you work. Yes. So I don't think that that would necessarily be helpful because it would feel like a failure to people who are watching me get harassed and who are harassed. And I, I part of the reason why I was sharing some of it, I don't want to, I think I need to, I'm going to take a break from engaging with it and even like making fun of it because I, you know, I think I've done as much of that as can be productive. But my goal with that was to sort of reveal how it's happening and what it looks like. And because I, I'm, I'm scared that, there are young women who are starting writing and think that their writing is so bad or so annoying or so horrifyingly awful to these people bombarding them that they that they're being that they'll be shut up um and i so i'm refusing to be shut up because i want to weather this and work towards a world where it's just not common to get like a Photoshop version of you in a gas chamber. I don't know. Like, is that so much to ask? I hope. <laughs> no. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to us. I know this is a really hard topic to talk about and it's unfortunate that part of your work life has to be this way um, yeah. and that we have to think about safety in a completely different way now. Um, so we really appreciate it. Yeah, it's really great to hear from you.
Well, that was a really eye-opening interview. Yeah, and I think when people hear stories of online trolling, they dismiss it a little bit. Like yeah. They think it's like, oh, that's all talk or have a thicker skin. But hearing Lauren speak, you can tell it's really close to becoming not virtual. Yeah, and you never really know where the line is between a real threat and a and an imagined one. Yeah, and she kept saying, like, it only takes one. Right. And I know that Megyn Kelly, the former Fox News reporter, was being attacked by trolls because of Donald Trump in a very similar way, in an intense way, and that some of the threats led her to seek having bodyguards for her and her family. You know, she thought the threat was real enough. Right, and in situations like those, it's still really unclear, like, what the obligation is of your employer, either their legal obligation or their ethical obligation, to help you out, to help you manage this stuff. And and what do they even do? Yeah, what can they do? And it's not just media people that this can happen to. I mean, we've been talking about examples of people who are in very public-facing jobs, but anybody could say something in or out of the context of their work that could lead to them being targeted online. Yeah, there are a lot of jobs that people see as political. I've talked to the Anti-Defamation League, for example, for stories that I've worked on, and that's not media, and the people who work there certainly get a lot of online harassment. And then if you think back to one of the tragic shootings of the last couple of years, it was at a Planned Parenthood clinic. And and those people aren't public, but they're doing a type of work that people are ideologically opposed to. I think as time goes on, companies are really going to have to reckon with this more and more and come up with ways of dealing with it that will feel just as obvious as the silly retro workplace safety video. And I don't really know how we transition from all of that serious stuff to half-baked takes, but we're going to try it. Half-baked takes. Becca, what is your overly strong opinion about something that doesn't matter? My half-baked take is titled, You Need to Ask Permission If You're Going to Eat During Meetings. Oh my goodness. It's kind of a bad headline, but... Often I will be so busy during the day and then I'll have a meeting at like one and I'll want to eat my lunch in that meeting. Right. And I need to do it. I cannot do it. But I think it's rude to just straight up eat during a meeting. I think you need to say like, is it okay that I'm making this a my lunch meeting? Yeah, you should acknowledge that you're doing something that's kind of rude. I guess some people's half-baked take would be don't do that. And my half-baked take is absolutely do it. Eat, feed yourself. But... And there's so many, like, once I had an orange during a meeting with you, Mm -hmm. and I felt weird. Yeah, that was a really weird day. It was a weird thing to eat in a meeting. I'll never forget that time you ate an orange. But I asked. So that's my half-baked take. What is your, not quite really a story, but still something you want to share with us today? Okay, I want to talk about the ulterior motive that people have for using standing desks. So standing desks get a lot of attention for being a fad or for causing standing desk envy or whatever. Um, But everybody says the reason to use a standing desk is because it's healthier because if you you sit for too long, you'll die or something. Yeah. I have a standing desk, which I have recently begun to use. And I understand now the psychology that makes people want to use standing desks. A standing desk makes you seem more important because you are just physically looming above other people. If you have the option to use a standing desk at work and you don't take it, you're just passing up a total office power play. Do you think that feeling more powerful also leads to greater productivity? I don't know, but it feels good to okay. just look down on everybody <laughs> from my my perch. Oh, so you are a standing desk superior. Yeah, I feel superior in two ways because I'm, I'm standing, so somehow that means I'm being fit. 
And also I'm just, yeah, I'm looking at the tops of people's heads. My wow. standing desk is like 11 feet tall. <laughs> cool. This has been Half Baked Takes. Half Baked Takes. Thank you for listening to Game Plan. I'm at Francesca Today on Twitter. And I'm at RZ Greenfield. You can tweet your half big takes at us at, at Game Plan. Or you can call and leave us a message on our voicemail at 212-617-0166. If you like Game Plan, please go on over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. We love reading reviews. We read every single one. We share them with each other and cry. This show was produced by Liz Smith and Magnus Henriksen. The head of podcast is Alec McCabe. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Don't be a diffle. Learn the rules of safe conduct and apply them. Yours is the safest job in the world. If you use your heads, it's up to you. <laughs>